Grab Are you recording screen. on your end? I am. Okay, cool. All right, we good to go? Let me, uh, you know what, I'll kill this fan. Ah! Yep, I'm ready. Cool. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. These freaks are dedicated, hardworking people. I'm Batman. Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of thought. This looks like a job for Superman. Let's roll! Let's hear it for Captain America! It's the Dying Man! It's the Rocketeer! Gentlemen, you're up. Back to the bins. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me for this episode, please welcome back to the show my very best friend in the whole goddamn universe, Chris Honeywell. Hello. (laughs) How's it going, man? Good. Oh my God. Somebody out there is flipping out, losing their shit right now. It's like, oh my God, it's them, it's them, it's them. All right, so they're talking together. (laughs) Real quick word of explanation for anybody that, you know, is new to the show, you know, just got paroled, just got rescued from Gilligan's Island, whatever the hell your situation is. Chris. I want to go back to Gilligan's Island right now. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Chris uh, is, uh, you know, one of the, uh, like myself, one of the original two true freaks, one of the OG freaks, as they say. Um, It was he and I that uh, started this whole whatever you want to call it, shindig, mess, <laughs> back in uh, back in 2008. And uh, it's it's been a while since we've been able to sit down and record together. So I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, just kind of out of the blue, I decided, you know what? I want to get Chris in on a show. Let's have some fun. So. Yeah, he was at the dentist, and it reminded him <laughs> we should call Chris. Yeah, I had was getting a tooth drilled, and just, I was like, just you know, as the drilling began, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what Honeywell's up to right now. <laughs> yeah, we we were chatting before the show and and uh and I was like we're talking about what's new and stuff, but I like avoided the the obvious topic of conversation till the show because um a little bit of history, you know, Scott and I went to went to well shit, we were hanging out in in elementary school before in middle school, high school. And, uh, then like, um, I went to college, he went into the, into the military, but when he got out for a brief period of time, we lived in a couple houses together in Rochester and Mm -hmm. the historic house that Scott lived in the serial killer attic with the, that contained (laughs) the museum of dental horrors is a total fire loss. Yeah. Burned down. Um, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad ago. you reached out to me about that because, you know, I, I, I want to know these things. But at the same rate, I, I got to be honest, it, that really bummed me out. I'm like, damn, you know, it was it was weird. It was, you know, it was. Well, so, did you ever so want to really th- move back in there? 
<laughs> Honestly, I mean, let's just a little history. The room that's that 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 Scott took took in this apartment was in the attic, and yep. it was it was I, I we actually filmed a serial killer movie once for a college film up in that <laughs> attic. It it was just like it was this attic with a room built into it with sort of a ceiling to the room with a couple holes in it. And I, I don't believe there was a, we didn't we have to run like uh, extension cords up there. For oh, yeah. Yeah. There was no power. There was no or... power in the room. And it was like, you know, 1856 wallpaper on it sort of well, half to, to give a, this to me has always been the, the perfect analogy, the perfect visual of what that space looked like. If you've ever seen Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. The attic that the mother finds Edward in in the very beginning of the movie, that's what that space looked like. It was creepy and 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 uh what's the guy's name? Tim uh Tim Burton. Burton, Burton-esque. It was yeah, it was just it weird. It was half Tim Burton, half Silence of the Lambs to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it had an outer place it was just, you know, rafters like an attic, you know, just a big open space and then and then the room and uh you know what's funny i mean what was the total time that i actually lived there with you it really wasn't that long i don't even think it was a whole year was it probably it was probably a year between that place and the other place on keller street i mean yeah and in that brief time just the memories man i mean we did so much crazy shit in that time you know from uh well, I don't know. I'm sure we talked. Did we ever do like a special episode or did we just kind of talk about it, you know, here, there oh, and everywhere on the old show? I don't remember. I'm sure we but talked I know about we definitely it. I, talked about it. I, I know we talked about when we used to call the payphone across the street. <laughs> that was my favorite. I love yeah. that. And uh, yeah, it was just I, I mean, I, I know during the video game show, we talked about how you had basically when you came up the stairs into the attic, there was just a, it was. I mean, cl- just the classic, you know, 20, you know, 20 year olds, 20, 20 to oh, 22 year old bachelor pad couch with a video game. Uh, uh, and I believe it wasn't even I believe it was Nintendo at that point. And, and yeah. you and you and uh, Kevin from next door would play Castlevania through the night we burned up a television. Yeah, bur- burned up a television and just had stacks of controllers from when you guys would smash them to the ground <laughs> in frustration. <laughs> I, I have rage issues in case uh, it's never been apparent. <laughs> yeah, so does Kevin too. So it was quite a it was quite an ex- exciting match. All of the, all of the video game matches were quite heated in there because it was either Castlevania or the only one you could really get me Blades to play with you was hockey. Steel. Yes, hockey. Yeah, yeah. I would you. One of us would come home and and then the other one would just be like, hockey, 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 hockey. And then again, it wasn't really about playing hockey. It was just about the <laughs> about the yeah. winning the fist fights. <laughs> yeah, reenacting slap shot. That was what it was all yeah. about. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't want to say burn to the ground, but it's coming down to the ground eventually. I, I don't think it's going to yeah. be fixed. 
Well, the only cool thing about seeing those images of, of the fire was that because of the nature of the way it burned, you could see straight into that space. So I'm, yes. I'm like showing my wife. I'm like, look, this is I used to live here, you know. And she's yeah. like, huh? That explains some things. So. <laughs> my bedroom, my bedroom window is just a big hole right now facing Monroe Avenue. Yep. No, they do they know anything about the nature of it? Was it was it arson? Was it a lightning strike? Was it I I I'm gonna go with either like somebody fell asleep with a cigarette or had a left a you know, left something on or something. It was in one of the upper middle apartments. So it wasn't like somebody threw something onto the outside of the house. But then again, the landlord who owned that place was a scumbag. And it's the same David or Paul Sussman, and we used to call him Susspool. That was his right. uh, his nickname, and he's still the owner because uh, Mike Cross was over here the other day to go look at it, and we walked over and we're taking a look at it, and there's Paul Susspool letting somebody in to grab their soaking <laughs> wet garbage out of the house, you know, the the what's left of their belongings out of the house, and the I mean that was 30 years ago we lived there. The guy does not look different at all <laughs> i mean there's no way in hell he was going to recognize me from the way i looked then uh, or, or mike uh, you know mike had his ridiculous mullet in those days so <laughs> but this guy th not that i mean suspool has that haircut that looks like somebody just slapped two beavers on his head and then gave him a bowl haircut it's like a davy crockett you know, made out of wet beaver, like damp, sweaty beaver sweat skin. And <laughs> I mean, the guy looked exactly the same. He, I mean, he looked like a, like he looked like an unhealthy frog person then. And he still does, but it's 30 years later. So Mike's like, he's gotta be a vampire. And I'm like, it's broad daylight. He's out in broad daylight. You know, he's gotta be a day walker. He, yeah, he's he's like Billy in uh, Fright Night, or not Billy? <laughs> what what was the the live-in assistant guy? I oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, I know, it was Billy. It was Billy. Yeah, because Charlie was the kid. Charlie was the Billy kid. Was yeah. the assistant. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, what else you got before we get into this? Anything? Uh, not much. Wait, you been reading any comics? Um. The last comic, well, I, I've gotten, uh, you sent me a comic, so I read my um, my dinosaur comic that you sent me, which is a favorite, right. I mean, not much story to that comic, it's mostly like just, but Steve Bissett is one of my favorite artists. So what, what Chris is talking about is, um, there was a series, I think it's only four issues, I'm not sure, but there was a series that uh, Steve Bissett, who used to work on Swamp Thing, and, and both Chris and I were really enamored of his art on that series. Uh, I think it's, is it Bissett or Bissett? I'm not sure. I think it's Bissett. I, oh, I, yeah, it looks like it would be Bissett. He... Um, he did this uh, this short series. I forget what the what the publisher was, but it was called Tyrant. I think was the name of yes. it. Yes, and it's about a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's all set during the whatever the hell period Ty Tyrannosaurus Rexes lived during, and the art's beautiful and all that. And it it came on my radar because uh, there's one or two covers uh, of that series that are on display 
for theming for dinosaur theming in one of the gift shops in animal kingdom at walt disney world so oh, wow i i collected them just simply because of the disney connection and everything and i've had them all these years i actually think i have the complete set and when an, when another copy of that first issue fell in my lap i'm like i bet you chris would like this so i, I sent it off to you because i knew that you uh you liked the set yeah I'm, he's, re- oh, I'm sorry go ahead he's always been one of my i mean the stuff on swamp thing and he used to do comics in um i want to say it was bananas the scholastic oh, magazine we used to get and yeah, there sometimes was a, yeah. he would do horse yeah. horror stories he and rick veitch would would usually do sto- horror yeah. stories and i think he did the cartoon it was very cartoony you wouldn't think it was, was beset but i think he did the cartoon of the remember it was all just fat these fat rednecks with snot coming out of their nose and they would sit there yes in the pig yeah slop. okay yeah yeah i think he's the guy who drew that that yeah that rings a bell i do remember that yeah it was kind of like the forerunner of like garbage pail kids or something like yeah that. it was total yeah. bro it was all gross out jokes and it was just yeah. two big fat redneck guys with li- literally with green snot just like dripping out of their nose and sitting in the slop in oh the hog pen. yeah oh man i haven't thought about that in God, it's got to be 30, 40 years. That's crazy. I know and it was it was from it was i mean i i remember reading it in like in whatever fifth grade just before going into middle school and like it was like there's no way that uh, these fat rednecks sitting in the slop with with their with their um liquor bottles you know the jugs next to them and everything i'm just like (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's uh fifth grade humor but that was why it was so great it was a year or two ago now and i could not tell you what book it was or whatever but uh i you know i've been selling comics you know in, in fits and spurts on ebay here for the last couple of years and uh i sold one to a steve Bissett in uh somewhere in new york uh, i want to say on the island i can't remember now and i made note of the of the address information and all that and saved it somewhere in all this mess but when i sent the comic off to him i, I just included a note saying you know i'm assuming it's it's the guy I, you know it might be some completely different person but i was assuming it was him and I just included a note in there saying, you know, if I really, you know, enjoyed your work over the years type of thing. I never heard back, so I don't know if it was him. Meanwhile, the guy's like a, a serial killer, and he's like oh, <laughs> a garbage man or something. I've got this guy's address. <laughs> <laughs> he knows. Yes, and and actually, there's a connection because, uh, like, Steve Bissett did a lot of work with Rick Veitch. They were they were buddies. And I mm-hmm. just read the latest Rick Veitch. Rick Veitch is putting out lots of comics. He's self-publishing them. He's he's putting them out at a regular pay. He's doing. Um, do you remember Brat Pack and Max Immortal? Oh, only for you talking about them. It's nothing that's ever been on my radar. But I know what you're talking about. It's, you know, just in broad terms. It's sort of he describes it as his take on a galactic powered superhero. It's basically like, you know, his his version of what like a real what Superman. Uh, it's not really like what Superman would be in reality, but it's sort of his take on on it. And it's a very um, Alan Moore sort of weird, weird, you know, like all these people from history, like real people from history, like J. Edgar Hoover's in it. Um, 
Sherlock Holmes is in it. Um, uh, Carl Jung is in it. Einstein's in it, you know, make appearances in it. And he's got characters that stand for all the, like the, the artists who created Superman and stuff. And, and, but it's got a little bit of Marvel and DC mixed in it. But, um, you know, he, uh, he stopped making those probably around two, early 2000s the last ones came out and he just picked up where he left off and and puts out instead of putting out issues he puts out basically a sort of a, a hundred page trade size um you know one where probably about 80 pages of it are the the main story and then he has backup stories and stuff from his sketchbooks and stuff in it and stuff like that and he's been churning stuff out and, and uh you can just go right to his, you know, his his web page and PayPal him some money and get a new comic. It's pretty cool. That is cool. Yeah, I, I sort of wish it came with autographs on them. That would be that would be even cooler. But it's funny you say that. It's funny you should mention that because I was just I was thinking that there was something else I wanted to mention about Tyrant and I could not remember what it was. That's what it was. Is that. I was looking this up while you were talking. Um, that Tyrant series was put out by a publisher I've never heard of, uh, the Spider Baby Graphics. I'd never heard of them before. Uh, just this it, year, it might have uh, been just for that book. It might have been just yeah, what could Steve Bissett decided yeah. to call it for that book. You know. Um, it just says I'm looking at. There's actually a Wikipedia for it. Believe it or not, it says was a comic book series by Spider Baby Graphics about a Tyrannosaurus Rex uh, uh, and its struggle to survive. And uh, it was actually nominated in 95 for a Best New Series Eisner, which is, that's that's pretty cool. I cannot remember now where I, it was only four issues, by the way. And I don't know where in the world I acquired it from now. I think I found it in a in like 50 cent bins or something, I think. Um, well, the ne- I, th- I think the neatest thing about it is it doesn't, they're not like anthropomorphic dinosaurs or anything. Right, it's yeah. just basically a visual storytelling of what would happen in dinosaur times. Right. Yeah. Three of the four issues that I that I have, you know, and it was only, you know, a four issue series, but three of those four issues are actually signed by Bissette on the cover, which I thought was really oh, cool. cool. I those on the cheap like that, you know, but there I was think, a, now that I'm thinking about it, like Rick Veitch might not even touch those copies that that he sends out. They might be it might be like one of right. those micro publishing things where when somebody buys it from them, they just print it and send it out to you right yeah there was a novel once um i don't think it was a series or anything there was just I think it was just a you know one-off type of thing i cannot remember what the name of it was that was about a dinosaur i think it was a i forget now it wasn't a i don't think it was a velocity maybe a velociraptor because it was right after jurassic park so it was probably it probably was a velociraptor i can't remember the name of it, it was like red rose or something like that and it was basically you know the life story of this of this dinosaur and its struggle to survive type of thing and i, I had it for years always intending to read it because the reviews are really good i never did but uh yeah I, w- I was always intrigued by the concept of something like that but yeah, i'm gonna have to dig out that tyrant book and read it i've had it for years and just you know it languishes in a box somewhere so <laughs> Well, we did uh, bring some comics tonight to talk about, so uh, this yeah, is going to be kind of unusual on Back to the Bins, isn't it? <laughs> uh, 
Well, we're going to uh, we're going to do a straight up review of uh, of a book, and then uh, for for long time two true freak listeners, we're going to have a special treat for you after the first book. I'm not going to tell you right now what it is. It's a treat. It's worth it's worth sticking around for. So, tell us what we got, Chris. All right. Well, still only thirty five cents. They came from inner <laughs> space. The Micronauts. The fantastic first issue of the Micronauts. All right. So this is from January 1978. Just a mere like few months after after Star Wars came out. But mm-hmm. actually probably even closer because. Because this probably came, that that January date was right. That was. The the dates yeah. were usually ahead of the time when they came oh, out, absolutely. right? Yeah, give me a minute. I'll look it up on uh, Mike's. So, yeah, so, so this is just sort of coming on the heel. It is definitely coming on the heels of uh, Star Wars because, man, Baron Cars is looking mighty Darth Vader like on that cover. <laughs> yes, he is. And and um, and uh, we, we've got a very very Han Solo like looking guy doing. For from, uh, is this? Oh no, this is a this is a Dave Cockrum and Al Al Milgram, is it? Yeah. Cover? Yeah. But it's it's he's doing that he's doing that Carmine Infantino thing where he's shooting it at the same time, like <laughs> basically taking a constipated dump. Yeah. Um. You know what's but, funny? I noticed this today, and I never thought about this at all in all the years. You know, I, I I've had this and read it and everything. That this is the only cover not done by Golden in the first 24 issues. Now Golden did the first 12, uh, you know, art-wise in the interiors. He was there for all 12 issues, the first 12 issues, and he did all the covers for those and uh, additional covers up through number 24. This is the only cover he didn't do, and it's the very first issue. And that just seems weird to me because his art. I mean, this is an okay cover, I guess, but his art is just, I mean, that was, I think for most everybody, that was the big selling point for this book was the Michael Golden art. I mean, yeah. we'd never seen anything like that before. Yeah, like the, the, the detail and stuff. And, and I mean, this cover is basically like 70s, 80s Marvel standard sort of cover style, you know? And, House uh, style, yeah. I'm thinking, and uh, when we when we when we get into discussion of this, I I'm thinking this this first issue might have been there might have been like a little hurry on this first issue maybe. It looked possibly, it, but um, all right, you want me to to uh, yeah. Before you do that, just real quick, uh, according to Mike's Amazing World, it was uh, what is nine? That's September. Yeah, September nineteenth, nineteen seventy-eight is when this uh, when this hit the newsstand. So Star Wars had not been out very long, but of course, Marvel had the leg up on Star Wars anyway because they were publishing the series before the movie actually hit. So yeah, this this yes. is. <laughs> very Star Wars influenced. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm sure Star Wars was selling like hotcakes too, so might as well. And this had a toy series behind it too, so you wanna you wanna time all that stuff right. All right, so uh, this was Micronauts number one, thirty five cents from January 1978. 
um bill men mentalo bill mantello diet mentello mantello <laughs> and mike golden are the writers sto- slash storytellers artist um you got joseph rubenstein with embellisher which i imagine is inker or maybe inker right. who who adds a few little things to it and uh Al Milgram, editor, Jim Shooter, editor-in-chief, Tom Orzachowski, Orz, Orz, Orzachowski, letterer, and Glennis Wine is the colorist. All right. <laughs> uh, let me turn my light on and try to keep this simple because this is not a simple story. Good luck, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm have I, I Even when I get done explaining this story, I'm going to have a few questions. <laughs> okay, I'll try to keep it simple. The evil Baron Karza has rallied the citizens of the interestingly named Homeworld to overthrow their rulers with the promise of immortality. Some of the escaped royalty, uh, Prince Argon, Princess Mari, Microtron the robot, and a mysterious ghost-like time traveler um, sort of uh, start forming a resistance m- movement and... Um, and plot to rescue their captured con- comrades, but Argon is uh, is captured by a, an attack by the dog soldiers. Meanwhile, uh, Commander Ran and his robot buddy Biotron, who I used to have the Biotron toy and Microtron, return from a thousand-year exploratory mission, only to have Ran immediately captured by Karz's dog soldiers. Um after being thrown in a cell full of hostile mutant alien prisoners, uh, he's uh, sort of um, um, saved by Bug and a Croyer who tell him if they that they have a plan, but they're not really telling him what it is. Uh, the next day, they're put in a giant arena and they're going to fight Baron Karza's giant death tank. Which seems to be a sort of hybrid. Baron Karza, I guess, is 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 somehow melding people and machines, and so this is like this sort of living half-human death tank creature. Um, but a band of acroyers and uh, Princess Mari and Microtron are there to uh, bust them out by creating a distraction and an attack, um, which apparently is okay with Baron Karza because he's just sitting back talking about how he's got a long game plan and this is all part of it. Anyway, uh, they end up busting out and uh, get back to Ron's ship, which somehow nobody's paid attention to and just let Biotron hang out in. And and Biotron's there, ready to blast off. They blast off, pursued by Karza's forces. They warp into the microverse, I guess, on their way <laughs> to Earth. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things. I am not sure that between chapter one and chapter two, where Ron gets back, that a thousand years haven't passed. <laughs> I, I can't tell if he just got back, like just after chapter one took place or if it's many years afterwards and everybody's been locked up and you know it's 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 hard to tell i'm guessing it's not going to matter much because most of this is going to end up taking place on earth 
Right. So, right. so it's hard to like invest myself into trying to, cause man, oh man, this is just pay. I mean, this is page after page of beautiful Michael Golden art and almost impossible to comprehend world building. It's yeah. so complicated for something to sell kids toys, you know? That's the thing with this that that impresses me the most, though, is that it's my understanding. I, I could be completely wrong, but uh, things I've read have led me to believe that Jim Shooter had a very low opinion of Bill Mantlo. And that's why he got assigned a lot of stuff like this. I actually have a, a very big respect and appreciation for Bill Mantlo because uh, it's, it's been probably a couple of years ago now, but I finally completed um the entire run of ROM space night. And I sat mm. down and read it from beginning to end. And it's really good. And especially good when you consider the guy was given two things. He was given a ROM action figure and the knowledge that ROM fights the dire wraiths. Cause that's what the commercial said and told right. go. And that's it. That's all he had to work with. So he built the entire mythology of rom space night everything the the space knights galador the whole schmiel i can only assume it's pretty much the same situation here because as kids as you say i know that you had uh microtron and, and biotron i had time traveler i think that's the mm -hmm. only micronaut i ever had i wanted a croyer so bad but my parents wouldn't buy me micronauts because they were tinier than Star Wars figures. So they were really small and they were wicked expensive and they were just weren't going to feed another hobby. You know, I was already buying, they were already buying me like every Star Wars figure that would come out and they just wouldn't allow me to get into another, you know, money chewing yeah. thing like that. So a, a time traveler was the only one I ever had. But my impression is, I don't know near as much about the origin of the Micronauts as I do about ROM, but my impression here was that it's basically the same story all over again, that there's there's a line of toys, and some of them already existed, like Microtron, Biotron, Baron Karza, um, and Time Traveler, and a Croyer, and was just told, okay, do something with these. And so he basically kind of apes Star Wars, and... It works. But what's funny with this first issue, though, is that neither neither you nor I came in at the first issue. No. So we know with authority that this first issue, for all this shit that happens in this and all the world building, really doesn't play in too much because you and I both came in when it was the Earth Adventures. And I never I didn't learn this backstory for years because number issue number one of the Micronauts was like. It was almost like the Hulk, and this is a bit of an extreme exaggeration, but it was it was kind of like the Hulk 181 of its day. You you couldn't find it, you couldn't buy it, you couldn't touch it. It was just impossible to to get this book. Uh, actually, it's more like Howard the Duck number one, which I don't know if mm -hmm. that's still a hot yep. anymore. But at, at the at the time that 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 was a good analogy for the time was Howard the Duck number one was another one of those books that suddenly exploded and you couldn't you couldn't lay a finger to it. And Micronauts number one was the same way, but I don't remember being, when I finally did get it, I don't remember being disappointed by it or anything, but I do remember thinking, damn, this is a very, 
it has a very different feel from the entire rest of the of the golden issues because when they get to earth it suddenly lightens up and yes. we find out that there's a t- there's a size difference because they're literally they, I don't know is, is they ever use the word microverse in this first issue? Yes, just at the very uh, let, let me see it's uh Yeah, it's weird how that's why I was sort of posing my last sentence as a question because I'm not really sure that it, and the six fugitives breach the fabric of space and time. Oh wait, 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 wait where is it? Uh, oh, small yeah. thorium orbiters flatten like pancakes against the unseen space wall that marks the fringes of the microverse. Yeah. So originally, I think this did change later, but originally the micronauts were literally that. They existed in a summit subatomic world, a subatomic universe all its own. And I forget how they get there, but they eventually um, emerge on Earth, but because they come from the microverse, there's a size difference, and they wind up on Earth about the size of action figures, which is funny because that's what they were in the real world was action figures. And they play with that idea, and it's so much more fun. Like they make friends with a child, you know, a normal, you know, human size Earth child who I, I think he like carries them around in their ship and stuff like you would with action figures. And yeah, it just no, was, he has them in, like, it in his came, backpack half the time and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it became much, it, it became kind of, I don't want to say cutesy, but it became cuter because it was playing with the whole idea of action figures, you know, that were, that were real and functioning in the Marvel universe yeah. type. No, thing. It, it felt Spielbergy, you know, yeah. it felt like a, Sp- yeah. like a fun yeah. Spielberg kid centric movie whereas this first issue is sort of like science fiction meets dune <laughs> sort yeah. of it's i mean it's not that that leveled of writing but for for you know 30 page comic it's it's uh <laughs> pretty you know it's it's yeah. it, it you know baron Carza's building he's offering people you know at first it seems like Usually when you hear a story and everybody's like death to the tyrants and the citizens are like running people out of the castle, you're like, oh, good. They got the tyrants. But it's like the the, the citizens have been duped by Baron Carzo's like if you kick out your leaders, I'll make you immortal. And and he's doing it, I guess, by turning him into partial machines. And he's got one of the acquirers who's a turncoat, who's his first. It's all very very it makes it seem like this is going to be something that you're going to have to take notes on it even has <laughs> like a little section where they have all the characters and have them spelled out so about three quarters of the way right. through the book you can go like oh okay that's what's going on and yeah. then you don't really need any <laughs> that after it so it's weird it's a weird little tonal shift but and i also think like i mean no matter how you slice it, Michael Golden, I've never seen Michael Golden art that hasn't looked really good. Right. And it's, it's just, his style is so appealing the way he draws faces, even though a lot of times his faces kind of have a weird shape to him. It really works. And there's a lot of stuff he does. That's just outlines and stuff, but it's got a neat futuristic look to it. But it looks like with this one that maybe, 
a lot of his like signature like super detail is missing from parts of this and like there's a lot of parts with like no backgrounds and you know just white backgrounds and stuff and i have a feeling maybe he didn't have as much they didn't have as much time to put together the first issue as they did subsequent issues because like issue two the art takes that like the art is so richly detailed it's almost like how could they maintain this you know he only had he only maintained it for a year i guess (laughs) well that was the thing with with michael golden by his own admission um he was just very slow. I, I've had the the honor of actually getting to meet and speak with Michael Golden for just. I was a few there days. with you. Were you? Where, yeah, where was we, that at? at uh, I, I believe it was Dragon Con. I want to say. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think we turned a corner and he was right there and and he was he was literally drawing yeah. when we came up on him and we were just like. That's Whoa. right. That's right. That's right. I forgot that we ever went to a to a comic event. That's right. Yeah. And I think we met Jimmy Pamiotti like yeah, yeah. two minutes after that. <laughs> but you remember uh, Golden was talking about that, just the fact that you know he he loves you know drawing comics and everything, but he's just so slow. And that's because I I remember talking to him and just asking him, I, I can't remember how I phrased it, but just essentially why why didn't he have a bigger body of work? He's such an incredible artist. Everything he's ever done has has always, you know, really stood out amongst his peers and everything. Why why didn't he do more? And that was basically the answer was that well, you know, I would have loved to, but I'm just really really slow, and it makes it hard, you know, in, when you're working on like the regular monthly title of anything that it's, you know, he he just has trouble sticking to the monthly format type of thing because his art is so dense you know just so detail packed and meticulous and everything which is great um and that's a pretty common story i mean over the years on on back to the bins you know we've talked about a number of artists where that was the problem um we did a an examination a while back of um oh my goodness now i'm gonna blank on his name um but we did we did an episode we called focus on and the the artist that we looked at in that that was the same story with him that uh you know his art was just so rich and detailed and he took such time and was so meticulous with it that uh you know it's uh, alan weiss um that's why he didn't have a bigger body of work because he just couldn't he couldn't handle deadlines you know yeah he was one of those guys that would just constantly blow deadlines because of the you know the work ethic that he had you know he'd he'd rather take his time and do it right than you know do a vinnie coletta on it just to get through it and collect the paycheck you know well that's the thing is the paycheck is they could probably make like more money doing like one graphic design thing for a company you know for you know their magazine or something that would you know be the same as the same amount of work and time he put into like five comics or whatever and not get paid as much or you or, right. or something like that you know you'd have to do like five comics to make the same amount of money or something like that it's yeah it's just a it, it, it's a it's not a world it's it's definitely not a world that val that that like leaves a lot of leeway for you being you know and there are like good artists who had huge output but like you would notice it would slip you know the 90s right. was the prime time of that with uh What's his name? No foot guy. Oh, Rob Liefeld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like, oh, this guy's a good artist. He's like, I'm a good artist. I'm going to just draw eight million books and, you know, 
Mm-hmm. And eventually you're just like, shit, I got to write, draw one book with my right hand, one with my left hand, and one with my foot, you know? Right. And then the one with the foot looks like garbage. Yep. Except the foot could actually draw feet, but his right <laughs> and left hands couldn't do it. Now, what was your what was your level of familiarity and, and commitment to this book back in the day? Um, it was it was one. These came out like just as I was like, I mean, probably at this time, I was probably only looking like to buy Star Star Wars comics, you know. And any other right. comics that I got were just sort of catches catch can trading with mad magazines or something like that. But I wanted the Micronauts comics, but I by the time that like I started getting the Micronauts toys and stuff, I was only you know, I would I would pick up an issue every now and then and you know it they they wrote them in those days enough so you could, even though it was a s ongoing storyline, you could still still read them but i only i only ever had a handful you know like four or five of them at a time i think it's only now that i i uh i actually found the first like 15 issues in an antique shop in albany oh wow we were going there to to go to a concert and we saw this antique shop and we're like oh we got some time to waste let's go in here and they were a buck a pop so I just grabbed them all. That's, yeah, that's a perfect I th- price. I think I got, I think that was the same, I think I got actually at that same place almost, almost a full run of uh, Moon Knight, Moon Knights too. Or Those, no, yeah, Moon Knights, yeah. Th- was it the old Sienkiewicz uh, ones? Yeah, yeah, the original run of uh, of Moon Knight, the first run. I, I, I don't know I don't know where they're at right now, but you might want to look into I mean unless you're you know wanting to hold on to them you might want to look into what you might be able to get for those because oh, really? I had I had an almost complete collection of those and when the announcement I don't know if you know this or not he's coming the character Moon Knight is coming to Disney Plus oh oh who's hit. It was it was him and several other characters. It was Moon Knight. It was um, She-Hulk. There were several characters that they announced, and so I gathered up my new Moon Knights and put them up on eBay, and I made me a small fortune on that shit because I had an almost co- complete collection of the old uh, Sinkevich. I'll have uh, to read them to see what I think because I love Sinkevich. So they're a mixed bag. The art is beautiful. Um, and right. Doug Mensch, uh, I, I think Mensch wrote most, if not all of the issues. I, I really like Doug Mensch, but it's like, it, to me, it felt like he didn't quite know what to do with the character because it, it felt to me like, you know, everybody argues about whether or not Moon Knight is Marvel's Batman. Some people say he is, and they're you know, very vehement that he is, and then other people are like, no, he's not, damn it. And, you know, they, they argue about this. But to me, what it felt like, those old issues I, I read, was that Mensch couldn't make up his mind whether he was Marvel's Batman. Right. Or, you know, so sometimes he was and sometimes he wasn't. Um, they're not bad, uh, but I, you know, n- not a single thing that happened in them, not a single issue stands out in my memory. And I'm pretty sure I, I actually had read all the issues that I had. Uh, you know, it was pretty rare for me, but I think I did. 
because I was really taken with the art. The arts, it's all about the art with those books. I mean, some of the covers on the that first Moon Knight series by Sienkiewicz are are just iconic. They're beautiful. Um, the stories are generally, you know, they're like '70s Batman stories. A lot of them are like for, completely forgettable. You know, I'm yeah. I'm I'm friends with him on Facebook, and I and he just always is posting some new gorgeous thing that he's draw some commission he's working on and stuff. And it's, I I, I don't want it to, huh? He's a God. Sienkiewicz to me, he's a God. He's such an incredible artist. I mean, it sounds ghoulish, but like whenever somebody dies, he'll draw a portrait of them. And they're always like, just the they they're the best they just capture whatever whoever it was you know he's just very good at 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 doing that yeah he's 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 one of my all-time favorites did you ever read he did a uh a prestige format i think it was a four issue mini this was back late 80s early 90s i know i was in the service when it came out it was called stray toasters did you ever read yes. that Yes, I did. I have a copy of it. So or I have a like the the collect, you know, the trade of it somewhere. If you ever want to cover now, you'd have to synopsize it. But if you want to cover, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why uh, that's that's why I qualified it. You'd have to do the synopsizing. But uh, if you ever want to cover that, I, I would like to look at that again, because that's one of those books that every time I, I flip past it in my in my boxes, you know, my long boxes, I'm like, I'm always kind of amazed with myself that I even own that, that I, that I bought it back in the day and I read it. I couldn't tell you shit about it, but I remembered it's very nineties. And it's all totally I remember of it. outside my wheelhouse, you know, but I, I do remember reading it and really liking it, but it was just so, so freaking bizarre. It was just weird. Sankevitz reminds me of a lot of alternative or underground cartoonists, this is something that like is like in 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 like DC and Marvel like you might have a great artist and then you team him up with a writer but in like indie land and underground land everybody's sort of more or less usually on their own there's not as much like right there are writer artist team ups every once in a while but usually it's the the artist is the writer right and that often doesn't work like sometimes you can get like I don't think Bill St. Kevin, I, I think he wrote straight toasters. I think yeah, that was his, his story and stuff. And I think he was trying to be David Lynch in a, in a but so I remember, I don't remember anything about it except that I remember being like, ah, this is written kind of pretentiously, but it's beautiful. You know, the art is, is beautiful. It's a little, it, it's, a, it's even more weird than his usual comic stuff because it, I remember a lot of it was like painted. So it was like yeah. mixed media art. There were pa- paintings, there were photographs pasted in there and stuff. And it was, it was, it was almost like there was almost like this, like uh, with music in the sixties where like, it hit that sort of anything goes period. I think in the nineties there were so like with guys like Sinkevitz, they somebody told him like, do your thing, man, just do whatever you want, it, it, <laughs> uh, whatever you want, just do it and hand it into us. And that's what straight toasters was. I remember it got, I, it's got good reviews, I think. And, and sold yeah. pretty well. 
Yeah, they they collected it, and I just looked it up. He he did do everything on it. He uh, he did the uh, he wrote the story, he did the art, he did everything, and it actually has been collected as a trade paperback. Which uh, yeah, all I remember is going. Well, this will never be adapted into a movie, and if it is, it'll be the weirdest <laughs> movie ever made. Right. Well, back to this. <laughs> Back I'm to the sure, Micronauts. I'm not sure how we wound up on that from uh, from Micronauts number one, but uh, um, it's funny, you know, you know me and my classic shitty memory, but amazingly, I remember exactly where I found this issue. Because again, you know, I, I came into this late. I'm pretty sure I came into Micronauts at issue five because the pit made such a, an impression on my young mind. There's in the in the later part of the story on Earth in some lab or something there was this literal it was like a it was like a hole in the in the lab that just led to like infinity and a guy at the end of issue five a guy falls into that pit and when you fall into the pit you fall into the microverse so he falls in as a full-size man and it's kind of like the ant-man movie where he just basically shrinks not quite out of existence, but he shrinks into the microverse. But it, that that concept and the way it's drawn so creepily by Golden just it, that made a real impression on me as a kid. It was it was kind of a horrifying image the way it's it's portrayed and everything. But I came into this late, but I just fell in love with it. I, I liked the whole concept of you know these little action figure sized people and their Star Wars like adventures on Earth and. You know, and they actually were in the Marvel Universe because they ran across like uh, Man-Thing and I can't remember who else. I know some other characters as well, but I, I was just really taken with it. So I wanted to collect, you know, all the issues, but you just couldn't find a number one. So I, I couldn't tell you what year it was, but I finally sometime it had to be sometime in the 90s. Um I don't know if you ever went with me, Chris. Did you ever go with me up to Kingston, up to that comic shop that was up on um, up on Princess Street in Kingston? No. no, I've only been to Kingston once, and that was with my mother when I was like in middle school. Oh, okay. I used to go up there quite a little bit. I can't remember who I used to go up there with, but there was a, this really nice comic shop. Um, it was just like a little mom-and-pop place. Um, on Princess Street, right up at the top of the hill. And back in those days, the the dollar versus the Canadian, you know, the American dollar versus the Canadian dollar, yeah. we were at such an advantage. So I would go up there with, you know, relatively meager funds and just clean up. And I remember finding Micronauts number one in their 50 cent, like Canadian 50 cent bin, which at that time was pennies, you know, on the right, right. and was, was just Alan Middleton with territory. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, we, God, I can't remember who the hell, I was thinking it was you. If it wasn't you, I, I literally don't remember who the hell I used to go up there with all the time. But we'd go up there and just clean up. Because you'd go up and you'd you'd buy you know comics most again mostly out of the fifty cent bin, and you could get so many of them because of you know the the exchange rate, and then as we were coming back, you would always have to stop at the border and they'd ask you if you had anything to declare, and so what I would always do is is you know, just in kind of a stereotypical ah eh, you know some, just some comic books, 
oh, okay, well, go ahead, you know, and they would never look when you just kind of threw it out there like, oh, just a few comics, you know, like you had stopped at the quick stop and picked up a couple for the kids in the back seat or something, not realizing there's a trunk full of comic books. <laughs> Four long boxes in the <laughs> Right, in the yeah, back. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, we got to... Even, even yeah. then they wouldn't care because they'd be just like, ah, it's just a bunch of comic books. It's yeah. I, we used to go to Toronto and there was a uh, and I and I the name is is uh, is escaping me. I want to say Fantastic Planet, but it wasn't Fantastic Planet. But it, it's a legendary right. comic shop in Toronto. Yeah, I know the one. And yeah. we used we used to go there and all the indie stuff that I couldn't find anywhere would be stocked there. And it was all stuff that was like super hot and expensive, and they would just have it for cover price, you know. And you come over there with your American dollar, and yeah, I would just like walk out of that store every time, just like, oh my god, I can't. The only time in indie underground comics that I ever had a better, better time was when I went to San Francisco, where they were all published in the, you know, in the. In the 90s and in the 60s. So like almost, like just regular stores you would go into would have boxes of old comics sitting in the front or indie comics that, that you know, the, the distributors had just stuck in there cause, that they would. Um, and, and the same in Seattle. And I just remember like coming back and like I've completed all my collections. <laughs> <laughs> Who was your favorite Micronaut? Oh, geez. As a character, Biotron, but I always liked, like, Microtron because he was kind of a little bastard. He <laughs> and Bug were the, little, the, the, like, bastards of the two. I always wanted the Bug figure, and I never got that. See, I don't, I, my parents didn't like to buy me toys. They, they liked to keep the toys to a minimum, but. The only reason, like, the only re, like, Micronauts were the only toy that I, like, ruled all my friends on because, and, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure it was because my dad thought they were cool. Because every time right. that I got a new Micronaut, my dad would make sure to be there when, for the unboxing. <laughs> you know, he wanted to see how right. it went together and see all the stuff it could do because they were amazing toys. They were. Just the little figures were neat looking because they were like semi-transparent plastic and they just looked cool. They were Tron before Tron. And uh, well, also they had that cool thing where you could you could change them into, you know, they were they were. Um, what do you call it? Like interchangeable parts because they were held together with magnets and, and things like that. So you could actually make different toys. That's why. There's absolutely no explanation given for it in this issue, which had to confuse anybody who was going in cold without familiarity with the action figures. But if you'll notice, the very first time that we see Karza in the book, he's a centaur. But then yes. later, when you see him sitting in the in the arena, you know, watching the death battle, he's got regular human legs. So that had to be confusing to people. But the reason that he is like that is because the figure was like that. He yeah. could change from a man to a centaur. Yeah. The Well, the like little figures just sort of had their own thing. And they had like, I just remember they had like a midsection, like a little plate in their midsection that pulled off. 
but the when yep. you got into Baron, I didn't have Baron Carza, but I had the he's whoever the guy was. I can't remember his name, but he was all white version of, but he was like Baron Carza, but he was all white, and all right. his limbs were held together by magnets. I think so you that could was just yank his arms and legs off, stick his legs where his arms were, you know. Right. If you had Baron Carza, <laughs> you could mix and match them, take their heads off and switch them and stuff. And and Biotron and Microtron had treads, and you could take them apart, and you know you could take Biotron apart and and put them back together as sort of like a, a you know like a Land Rover type right. of thing. You could put a little uh, um. <laughs> I don't <coughs> don't know how Drove any other it. way to describe it, but you could put on Microtron's um, bionic screw-like penis right onto his crotch, and as he rolled across the floor, it would turn slowly. <laughs> don't don't know what who designed that kid's toy, but they were having a good laugh after they got fired. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah i was i i, I love those toys so, and they were they were pretty i mean they got beat up but it it took years before they started falling apart they were good sturdy toys and they were they were fun and like i would put like it was a testament that i would play with them a lot and they weren't associated with a movie or you know with star trek or star wars or something like that you know yeah, that was the thing with them is that they they just kind of came out of nowhere, mm-hmm. and and there was nothing really pushing them or what. But what sold them, at least to you and I, I think was that they were just cool. You know, they mm-hmm. just looked cool. They were unique. There were there was really nothing else like them on the market at that time, and they were just cool. They were. I think they might have been like Transformers, where they got ported over from from Japan, probably. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They definitely were. Yeah, there's a. I don't know if it's a uh, the toys that made us or what, but there, there's a documentary out there. I know I've seen uh, about the origins of the Micronauts and all that, but I can't remember if it ever talked about the comics or anything. I, I don't know what the show was, but I remember watching one a while ago. It's funny you mentioned a figure of bug because I don't remember a figure of bug. And I was always under the impression that he was a Marvel original only because he's, um, he's one of the few that survives into the present day Marvel universe. Cause they, oh. they yeah, can't, maybe they never had one. Characters, um, with the exception of, well, bug bug, you know, pops up from time to time. He actually had a, a one shot back in, I don't know, late nineties, early two thousands. I think it was just like a one shot called bug. Um, but then back around the time of planet Hulk, uh, that whole storyline and everything where the Hulk had a son off on the planet Scar or whatever the hell the name of it was. Um, there was a, a little, I think it was like a four issue miniseries or something that tied into some event. And I can't remember now why I read it. I read it cause it tied into something else I was reading at the time and damned if Arcturus Ron and uh, Marionette didn't show up in that series. I was shocked and they actually had, they couldn't call him Biotron, but essentially Biotron was in it too. Uh, he looked a little bit different and he had a different name, but you could you could tell he was essentially Biotron. And I thought that was really cool that 
you know, these characters continue, their their universe continues to be used and exploited despite the fact that they can't legally call them the Micronauts or, or really use, you know, much of, you know, what, what Mantlo set up here. So it's a little bit different than the ROM situation because he created all of that out of whole cloth. The only thing they can't use with ROM is ROM, but they can use everything else. <laughs> but with the Micronauts, you know, it's, it's very tricky. You know, they can use this, but they can't use that, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, but my favorite character was always a Croyer and, I think it's for it's for two very simple reasons. I think his name is really cool. He's just yes. got a cool name. Um, but he's kind of the Boba Fett of the team. He's I don't know that he really is that cool, but he just looks cool. You know, he's got that whole Boba Fett mystique about him. You know, he's got the cool looking helmet. He's a badass, super powered warrior with a like a magic sword type of thing. The biggest mistake they ever made with a Croyer is when he took his helmet off. They should have. They should have never. It was like yep. the Mandalorian before the Mandalorian. He should have never taken his helmet off. Yeah, he takes his helmet off and it's just some puffy guy underneath it, just like Darth Vader. Yeah, he uh, he was basically he he looked like a like a purple bald guy with no nose. This is essentially what a Croyer is without his helmet on. It was kind of a letdown. But he is he he was a cool guy. I just wish I knew what happened. See, that's the thing. Is over the years, I have nowhere near a complete. I have the complete Michael Golden run, all 12 issues. And then after that, it's extremely spotty. So I have nowhere near a complete series. But I, I've recently made the commitment, you know, in the past couple of years that whenever I run across these on the cheap, like like a buck or less, I'm going to pick them up and uh, and try to fill in the rest of the collection like I did with ROM. It took me a couple of years, but I did them, you know, I got them all. And uh, one of these days, I, I do want to sit down and read this beginning to end because I'd like to know where they went. You know what what happened to these guys? You know what? I, I just I really don't know what became of you know well, other characters. Yeah, well, I mean, and then there was another run of it. There was like a second run of it, and then there was the, then wasn't there recently like somebody. Did, uh, I don't another yeah another company did another it. company did some some of it. Image, so. I want to say I could be wrong, but yeah, I know another company did pick up the the license. Um, I don't off the time I I'm kind of talking on my ass here. I don't really know for sure, but I don't think they could use any of what Marvel set up. But I could be wrong about that. I just remember seeing it on the shelf and looking at it and going like, yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, it was Image. I'm looking at it here. It only ran, according to Mike's Amazing World, it ran 11 issues. And then there was a four-issue Karza miniseries. Um, and then that was it. But, yeah, the Micronauts, that you know, this, this series ran 59 issues, which is nothing to scoff at. You know, that's just shy of, uh, what, five years, if it was a monthly. I think it was. And then there was also um, the X-Men versus the Micronauts miniseries, too. Oh, I which, remember that, yes. I might have had that, that at one time. Oh, it was uh, Bill Mantlo, Chris Claremont. So there's your X-Men connection, because he was the writer for X-Men. And then uh, Jackson Geis was the was the penciler. That was good. I remember that. I remember that four-issue mini was actually really fun. I, th- I, 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 seem to, I seem to remember it being really good. 
Yeah, I, I miss these guys. I, I thought they were they were really cool at the time. I'm trying to remember who the hell else in the Marvel Universe did they team up with? Because I I definitely remember that really cool cover. Um, looking here, it was issue seven where they ran across Man Thing. But I thought well, that's that other... that's the thing. It's like you you definitely want to see a Man Thing drawn by Michael Golden. How yeah. awesome is that? You know? Yeah, that was really cool stuff. Wasn't there one where they they wind up at like in a McDonald's or something like that? I believe there like, is, and they get in the soda machine or something like that. Yeah, yeah, some really good stuff. Oh, um, one other thing I meant to mention here is you you had mentioned right at the beginning that uh, that Ron reminded you of Han Solo. Did you catch on the very last page? There's a total Han Solo moment where they're flying away from the the pursuers in their ship that kind of sort of looks like a prototype Millennium Falcon anyway. Yep, yep. Then Ron says, uh, this lady's had some surprises built into her by Biotron and me over the past thousand years. And just the look on his face, the style of his hair, and the way I'm reading that line reminds me of, you know, this ship's got a few surprises left in her sweetheart type of thing. Yes. Oh, totally. (laughs) You know what I mean? But uh, but yeah, this this was fun to look back at because there's there's a ton of nostalgia for, you know with this uh, with this book. Far better than a a, a kitty uh, toy line tie-in should uh should be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. What do you think for grades on this one? Well, for the art, I'm giving it an A. It's not the greatest Michael Golden art I've ever seen, but the worst Michael Golden art I've ever seen has always been an A. Um, <laughs> story, I'm giving it a B, and a, that's a charitable B. <laughs> Probably should be a C, but I have affection for this this series, so I'm giving it a B. Um, the cover, B plus. Um, it's it's not a bad cover. I think it's kind of capitalizing on Star Wars a little. It looks almost like somebody mixed Star Wars and Logan Logan's Run together. Logan's Run. I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, Paul and I are covering Logan's Run right now. In the first issue of Logan's Run, uh, the cover was done by Al Milgram. And as soon as I – because I'd forgotten, honestly, what this cover looked like. And so when I dug it out uh, and looked at it, that's the first thing – that's the first thought that occurred to me is that Ron looks like Logan. Yes, he, he sure does, yeah. and uh, and uh, uh, the and the pose it's it's a pure Marvel pose. It actually it reminds me of uh, the the death of Captain Marvel um, cover too of the the graphic novel. Right, Captain Marvel's in sort of the same pose, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it got docked it got docked a letter because it, it wasn't Michael Golden. But overall, I'm giving it an A. It was it was a fun if confusing read, but a very pretty read. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm I'm much in the same place. Cover on this one, um, I mean, it's what sells this to to. I mean, and, and I was going to say to the uninitiated at this time. I mean, we were all the uninitiated. Who the yeah. hell knew who the Micronauts were? You know. So what sells this is you look at this and you just go, oh, Star Wars, more Star Wars. Okay, I'm in, you know, because, I mean, look at it. I mean, it's if you look at the cover of Marvel Star Wars number one and you look at this cover, 
they're not too different, you know? No. Different artists, maybe, but the setup is almost exactly the same. The only thing you're really missing is a guy, well, no, there he is right there with a Croyer. I was going to say a guy with a laser sword, but a Croyer has the sword. You just can't see all of it. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and 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 like they really like Baron Karza de- was designed like Darth Vader a lot, but they really oh, lean into it in this cover, you know that he's oh, more yeah. Darth Vader like on the cover than he is in in reality, especially when he's centaured out. But even when he's not, he's still he's yeah. more like a muscular, you know, sort of like te- metal Conan the Barbarian, you yeah. know, in this than than. Uh, Darth Vader. Absolutely. But not on the cover. <laughs> I'm and also, say... the way he has his hands also reminds me of the, the cover of, uh, what is it, number six, where Luke's shooting Darth Vader in the finger? Right, right. Five or six? Yeah, five, yeah, five or six. I forget which one. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking of the one uh, where Vader returned. Uh, during this, the wheel storyline, but you're right. Yeah. It's more reminiscent of, of the one during the adaptation. You're absolutely right. I think I'm going to go a B on the cover. I, it's not my favorite, but you know, it works. It's, it's, you know, yes. it's exciting. It definitely catches your attention, which is, you know, what it's meant to do. Um, interior art is absolutely amazing. And like you said, not, not, maybe not the best Michael golden that we would ever see, but it's, I mean, it looks really good. And to me, you know the 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 best compliment I think I can give it is it almost reads like a like a like a Nelvana Animation Studio photo novel. Yeah, it looks like yeah, and uh, and I, I'm so enamored of of that art style and everything. Yes, um, the story is really where it's super hard to because. You know, you can't fault Mantlo for having big ideas, for wanting to hit the ground running, for really throwing a lot of stuff in. But that's kind of the problem is that it's a little too much for the very first issue. I mean, this yeah. is the this is the polar opposite of decompressed storytelling. This is this is super compressed. <laughs> yes. Or, you know, it, it's it's ridiculous the amount of stuff that happens in this very first. You know, the number of ideas. I, I mean, he's. I, I think he took too many ideas that he'd been. I, I, I like you could tell Bill. He he obvious Bill Mantle obviously like maybe had a few fantasy science fiction novels in him, and probably had been keeping right. notes and was like, ah, oh, time to break out my notes and put a bu-, But he put like six of his stories together. <laughs> yeah, this one. Yeah. This this is literally this is the the textbook definition of throwing everything against the wall to see what sticks, you know, and very little of it honestly did uh, to my memory anyway. You know, once they hit Earth, the 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 whole tone shifts, everything Um, really all that survives is, uh, you know, their struggle to, uh, you know, for freedom against the rule of Baron Karza. And I think the thing with a Croyer's brother carries over, I think that does get resolved mm-hmm. down the road, but, um, so yeah, it's t- on, on the, on the story. Yeah. I think I'm going to go a B minus on the story. It, it, it could, it, it's just a little much, but overall I completely agree. I'm, I'm going to go an A on the, on the book itself. I, I do think it's an A book. I think it's one of those, uh, you know, those quintessential 70s books that, you know, every Marvel fan should should read or have read or have in their collection. It's 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 pretty. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a lot of fun. And it was 
you know, something of a, of a milestone of its time, you know, a touchstone of its time. And, you know, like I say, they are still mining a lot of this uh, stuff from time to time in present day Marvel as well. So, yep. cool. The, the comic yeah, and the toys like are, are better than the average comics and toys of their time. Absolutely. Of their type. Absolutely. Well, do we need a break or anything? Or are we good to, to go into uh, the final segment here? No, I'm good. I'm 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 ready for it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, uh, a word of explanation before we go into this. Word of warning. So, uh, years ago, uh, you know, one of the many shows that Chris and I put out on a, on a regular monthly basis was a show called Comics Monthly Monday, and everybody's favorite part of the show was a little segment we like to call. Get Chris to read a goddamn superhero comic. Comic. And that's right. That's me, Chris. And uh, I don't know if you're going to call this a superhero comic, but hey, close enough. It's DC from 1973. All right. <clears throat> Hello. I am Chris. And I read a comic book by DC Comics called Commandy, The Last Boy on Earth by Jack Kirby, except the inks and letters by Mike Royer. Commandy is the last boy on Earth, but there are some men left because he's hanging out with a bunch of them in an old post-apocalyptic mall so they can loot supplies and old DC comic books. They have a balloon that looks like a, a big prune so I will call it their prune balloon. While they load their crap onto the old prune balloon, suddenly they are attacked by Roman tiger guys with a cool motorized Roman tiger chariot. Commandy the last boy on earth and the not last men on earth get up in the prune balloon, but then the gorillas come and then they attack the tiger men and pull down the prune balloon with grapple hooks. They capture Commandy the last boy on earth and Prince Tufty the Tiger. He's great. <laughs> Commandy wakes up in an old swimming pool in the stupidest planet of the apes ever. Commandy and Commandy the last boy on earth is in a swimming pool with other human prisoners who all attack him, but then he beats them up and starts trolling a dumb gorilla who is amazed that Commandy the last boy on earth can even talk even though every other stupid human in the in the stupid swimming pool are talking like chatty Kathy dolls. Anyway, <laughs> he fights the stupid gorilla, gets his gun, and frees the humans so he can escape in the chaos and the riot. When he goes into a tunnel, he finds Prince Tufty the Tiger enjoying a meal in his cushy cell. It's great. He thinks Commandy, the last boy on Earth, is like a kitty cat or a little doggy, but soon learns he's real smart and reads comic books. Anyway, Tufty was just hanging out waiting for Tiger Force One to attack Ape Base so he could find the old fighter jets in the basement. Commandy, the last boy on Earth, knows that if there's one thing you don't want, it's super-evolved Roman Tigers getting fighter jets. So Commandy, the last boy on Earth, grabs the nearest flamethrower that's just laying around on the ground and torches the fighter jet. Now Prince Tufty is rethinking his kitty cat feelings towards Commandy, the last boy on Earth. The end. 
<laughs> Woo, Jack Kirby. Oh, Woo, man. Jack Kirby, you are one weird guy. Yup. Holy cow. Have you ever, right, right off, out of the gate, I'm going to divert us to something completely different. Have you ever read... <laughs> <Did> you tell? <laughs> have you ever read Eternals? No. I read that not long ago. Are you okay? Oh, I'm telling you. Yeah, it's it's like, yeah, show me on the comic where Jack Kirby touched you. That it's Woo! it's bizarre, man. So the He's... whole thing with Eternals is it came out um, you know, like like comics often would do. They they'd kind of just miss a fad, you know. Mm-hmm. They come out with Dazzler just as Disco was dying, you know. Well, they, well, nobody cared yeah yeah so kirby came out with eternals kind of just at you know just on the 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 end of the cusp of the whole chariots of the gods thing right with with von Dynakin and all that and in theory it's a really good concept and a really good uh idea that he had but in execution it's it's just like this. It's all over the place. And it's just... Let it me is just... like a kid that you have just poured five Pepsis down their throat and told them to tell a story. Yep. When the tigers come, then, 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 then the gorillas come and they fight the tigers. And they capture the tiger, but he's a teenage prince. And then they get their grappling hooks on the balloon. You know, it's just, it's one, it's, it is like kids playing there i'm not gonna say it's bad writing because (laughs) it's fun to read and there's something just so simple and primal about the way the story unfolds and goes and and the art which i used to hate jack i remember i remember you used to like avidly you know grab a you know get back issues of commandy from walt whenever you could and you were always like commandy yeah. you, you should read these commandy comics and i and i just could not get past the jack kirby art which now i find like each frame is like a sort of like just like design and storytelling masterpiece of of a kind but boy oh boy wow like you know, I think maybe this kind of comic is was sort of perfect for the time, but you know, once you got sort of past it, you couldn't go back to the yeah have something this simple of just sort of like goofy storytelling. And then, like the text right in the beginning, just the the opening words. Uh, what what would what would the world be like after a natural disaster of cyclopean proportions? What the hell are Cyclopean proportions? Yeah, I wondered that too. Of yeah. one eye, is is he just like, oh, the Cyclops was giant in a movie? <laughs> there was a movie with a giant Cyclops, because it's like the what the disaster of one-eyed proportion. What the hell does that mean, Jack Kirby? And then it says, uh, this sober question is answered, and I'm like, maybe you're not that sober, Jack Kirby. <laughs> you wrote right. this, <laughs> but I mean. Like just reading that, like that was a wonderful thing when I read Cyclopean. I'm just like, that sounds like something Doctor Evil would say in in you know uh, some non sequitur, you know that and somebody would go Cyclopean. What do you mean by that? You know, giant. No, it means one eyed. 
Right. <laughs> There's and, a lot of that in the Eternals too, where that, uh, yeah, he tries to draw analogies like that that just don't work <laughs> at all. And okay, so I have a question for you, and this is something I vaguely remember. Um, you telling me, and or maybe I remembered it wrong. It's from way back when we were kids. But is Commandy the Last Boy on Earth? This is this is basically a sequel or spinoff to 2001: A Space Odyssey, isn't it? No. Um. So Kirby did that. I know he, he did two. Th- 2001 and then he did the series too right he did yep so he did he did 2001 the adaptation of the film or or book um and then he did uh an ongoing series and machine man had something to do with that he I, i i they were either connected or machine man spun out of i think 2001 or something yeah so okay. they they were connected. Um, Commandy was weird in the sense that, all right. So for one thing, um, and it's I mean he made no attempt to hide it whatsoever. Commandy exists off of the fame of Planet, Planet of the Apes. Planet of the oh, Apes. Oh no doubt, no huge. doubt. And I mean all you have to do to you know exhibit A is the cover of Commandy number one. I mean he's rowing past a sunken. Uh, Statue of Liberty that looks just like it's been plucked out of the last frame of Planet of the Apes, which is fine. You know, he he was going with that whole riff and that's that's fine. Um, But it was an odd thing because we already knew sort of what the future of the DC universe looked like because Superboy went regularly to the 30th century, which was not post-apocalyptic you know it was this gleaming metropolis of the future with the legion of superheroes and all that so once they do establish uh, and i'm not sure exactly where that becomes a thing um i don't know if it's if it's strictly with the issue where commandy and ben boxer find superman's uniform or not or if it happens prior to that but w- at least with the with that issue then it firmly establishes that Commandy lives in the DC universe. So then it became this weird thing of, okay, what, so how does all that sync up? And then you get into, you know, not only did DC then have multiple Earths, now they've got multiple futures, you know, alternate timelines. And so it, it got really convoluted and, and, you know, interesting in that way. And it gets even weirder here yeah, because, that, you know, here I, he is. I'm looking in the DC mail comic. section and they uh, there's a, a a letter addressing this. It says, oh. by the way, how does this all fit in with the Legion of Superheroes whose adventures take place a thousand years hence? It's a doubt. It's doubtful that Commandy occurs before this time. Yet the scenes of New York certainly doesn't go along with the futuristic architecture as portrayed in every Legion story I've ever read. And then they said, and then it's not Jack Kirby who answers. It's Steve Sherman is who answers says well frank you can take it one of two ways either commandy takes place before the legion stories and everything is returned normal or you can accept them as two different situations with commandy existing in the real world and the legion in 
and, and real is in quotes and the legion in quotes imaginary metropolis as the stories progress we'll try to include a more detailed map in answer to the first part of your letter see the next answer so they sort of just sort of go like and then somebody in the next one would say like there's an overwhelmingly similarity to planet of the apes (laughs) you think (laughs) well i think it's very telling that when dc consolidated their universe uh multiverse as it was at that time uh with crisis on infinite earths and they merged you know all of everything together and naturally because pieces don't fit as we're seeing here some things had to go and one of the things that went was commandy so you know in the post crisis timeline uh there was no commandy he didn't exist anymore his timeline got eliminated um, which is it is a bit of a shame. I was never the biggest Commandy fan in the world. I had an almost complete collection that you're right. I got from Walt when we were kids, and it's the first thing I can ever remember comic book wise uh, that I really slogged through despite how I felt about the art. Cause typically for me, if I was put off by the art, I was done. I, I wasn't going to read it. Right. Right. But I was, I was so into the concept, um, you know, with it, with it being a riff on the planet of the apes and everything. And it, and it is fun, you know, especially when you're young, I, I think as I look at this, and I, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to denigrate Jack Kirby, but, I do think this is best. I don't know that it's aimed necessarily, but I do think this is best read by a young person because. Well, I'll I'll tell you one thing. This is what year was this? 1973. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was there was that time period in the you know in the 60s and stuff and 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 you know like you saw in um help in the movie Help you know the Beatles had their favorite comics up on the right. you know and all the ba- rock bands were writing songs about Superman and, and stuff like that, you know, and comic books and stuff. So I think all like Commandy was basically targeted a for little kids. Cause this, this makes total logical sense for little kid logic or right. adults and teenagers who are hitting the old, uh, happy, happy 60 yeah. cigarettes, you know, yeah at yeah. the time and i think that's it that we're just like dude this is like ridiculous you know <laughs> yeah so that, I, that's yeah that's where i was going with that because yeah i i think if you're a kid you're just go, you're going along for the ride and you're enjoying it for the cool things that are happening for the great because vi- it is artistically it's it's amazing i mean it's it's really cool yeah. especially how it starts with the, you know, the post-apocalyptic uh, outdoor mall and all that. I love those images because it's very like, you know, Walking hey. Dead, Logan's Run, Planet of the Apes type of thing. And, I, and I'm always a sucker for the post-apocalyptic world, you know, the after-disaster world. If uh, this was a movie you- with exactly this happening in the movie, I would be down. I mean, <laughs> exactly as stu- like with the same dialogue if this all played out in a movie, what a fun movie it would be. It would be a riot, you know? It would it would be, it would be fun, ridiculous. It would but make... that's the thing, is is there's not a lot of there's not a lot of logic to it because you know, how how did they get here? All right, so here's the thing that threw me right out of the gate with this. And I and I, I'm 
I'm just I'm I'm passingly familiar with Commandy. I don't remember enough of what I've read over him over the years to remember like when when exactly is this supposed to be happening. So I'm assuming at this point that the great disaster wasn't like hundreds of years ago that at, at most maybe it was a couple of decades ago because you know the comics beat up but it exists. It wouldn't exist if this was hundreds of years later. They're yeah. raiding a store for canned foods. Well, if this was hundreds of years after a nuclear disaster or whatever the hell it was supposed to have happened, that shit yeah. would be gone. That, that stuff that, is that sludge, stuff was... and, and and if it's they found any, it would be sludge and black sludge yep. in a can. Exactly. You know? But so, I, I'm I'm thinking, you know, you look at like The Walking Dead. You know, after what five ten years. Every store has been raided. Every gas tank is empty. The the old world is completely used up. Yet here they are. They're still finding remnants of the old world that, that are usable to them. So that tells me it's not that many years past the disaster. Well, if it's not that many years past the disaster, how did the apes the tigers and and we see all kinds of other races of beast men i know that there was rat men there's at some point there's a sentient whale you know all these how did these other beast men have have a culture this established in just a you know that short amount of time you know in planet yep. of the apes we had the benefit that it was a couple of thousand years later so there was plenty of time for that evolution to take place to where you didn't question it too much you know apes on horseback okay i can see that in a science fictiony way you know radiation whatever the hell they've evolved to this point but this can't all have happened in like 20 or 30 years here to where the you know the world is this different well uh, somebody wrote in <laughs> Oh, okay. But, Is that addressed? It doesn't answer the question, but it might give it an out where they were they were basically writing in and going like, this isn't what a post nuclear world would look like. And uh, um, they'll say, if you look back to the first issue, you'll see it wasn't an atomic war which caused the trouble, but a natural disaster such as a massive earthquake coupled with some unknown radiation bombardment. So they could retcon that to be like <laughs> some evil person's like, now I'll put my muto beam on the earth and turn all the beasts into, you know, right. intelligent bipeds. Right. Or something, you know, it could be something like that. But, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the, 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 like, it, I mean, all you have to do is not even get to the first picture when you're reading it and go like, all right, I'm not going to try to like, have this make sense. I'm just going <laughs> to read it for its own inside its own internal logic and, right. you know, way that it, which is, <laughs> which is, you know, half, half baked and ridiculous, but okay. <laughs> half baked and ridiculous can be a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, if they, if, if this was a movie, it would be just a, it would be an awesome movie. It's, I mean, even on paper, it would be an off, awesome movie, and it's like, and like, there's things that just don't make sense. Like the okay, the the the, the Tony the Tiger people are are evolved from. It actually looks more like the so like put a tiger in your tank, tank tiger. <laughs> but uh, 
Actually, it looks like like he's from the '80s Olivia Newton-John style because he he's got like that headband on. But uh, you know, they're evolved. They're 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 evolved from the the Romans. Like the Romans have turned into tigers and have chariots and stuff. And it's like, what Romans? this this disaster didn't happen during roman times the romans are long gone there's there's rome there's people in rome but they're not driving around in chariots hailing caesar and and wearing their roman gear who are these romans that mutated into tigers and are still living by their own roman ways you know although the ram like when they were like Come on, ram the ram the barriers to the the castle, and they shoot actual like mechanical rams heads out. When looking at those rams heads, wasn't there? They look like a toy. There wasn't there a toy that yeah. actually had like a ram head on it that shot yeah. it out like that. Yeah, I I can't tell you what it was now, but there was definitely a toy yeah. that did that. I think it was like He Man or something. Yeah, like it was something like that. It was something. It was. I mean, it was many many years after this. This obviously wasn't like copying or tying into that, but it was. It was really weird. <laughs> well, right out of the gate, this this already was giving me a headache. Right with that very first opening splash where. Commandy is standing in that, you know, that bombed out or whatever it is, grocery store, and he's thumbing through DC's The Demon by Jack Kirby, number one. And I'm going, well, wait, 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 that kind of thing makes my head hurt, you know? So I actually went to Crisis on Infinite Earths, and I was really hoping to find a shot of Commandy and The Demon together, like on the same page or in the same panel or what. I couldn't find one. But, yeah, I mean, the demon, you know, it exists for real in the same universe that this kid's... Uh, so, I don't know, it's, the whole thing gets really weird at that point. But well, I have a feeling I that guess. Jack Kirby, they were just trying to sell... <laughs> get a oh, little yeah. extra, extra oh, sales. In that, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm again, I'm wondering, though, at what point did... did Commandy become part of the DC universe? Was that right out of the gate? Or, or not, because it seems, you know, by that letter that you were you were referencing in the letters page where the guy's talking about, you know, where does this fit with the Legion? It seems pretty evident that right out of the gate that it was either known or just generally assumed that this was happening in the DC universe. So that that's interesting to me. I wonder, you know, where they just... You know, was there ever even a thought to maybe just have it be its own thing? Because DC did other stuff that they released that was not part of that canon. You know, like they had a series like Starfire and, you know, Hercules Unbound and some of those other uh, series that they did in the 70s that, you know, they were not part of the of the DC universe. They were their own separate things. Um, I, I think Commandy actually would have worked better as its own separate thing, although... Yeah, yeah but they, they, they were probably thinking if they made him part of the universe and all of a sudden he was very popular, then you could cross him over, you know, right. they, yeah. they could exploit it if he was, you know. Yeah. Which but then again, did. I mean, it, there's it never whatever, never anything never seemed to stop comic people in the early in these early days <laughs> from just doing whatever they needed to do to, you know, 
to move something right. forward or to to sell more books or, or or whatever so you know i i always get the feeling that they would be like okay write this comic put it out and then cross their fingers and be like all right let's just hope nobody asks any questions and then it's <laughs> like then the first comic and then it's just like oh they're asking questions we got to figure out now we got to figure out all this stuff that we were just sort of sloughing over well, I mean, some people did, but other people, I mean, the, the, the best example would be uh, Bob Haney on uh, on Brave and the Bold. You know, Bob Haney was the writer on that series, and Bob Haney did not give two shits about <laughs> continuity, about, you know, because people would write in all the time and say, okay, so in the last issue you had uh, Batman crossover with uh, Wildcat. Well, Batman exists on Earth-1 and Wildcat exists on Earth-2 and you didn't explain it and he would just frigging ignore them. You know? <laughs> I like didn't, that. He didn't give two shits. You know, if, if it was a character he could use and make a good story out of it, he didn't. I mean, he, he would give the barest of bones and, and oftentimes the most ridiculous ridiculous if he did give an explanation the most ridiculous explanation of how batman teamed up with some of the people that he teamed up with and the two best examples i can think of is when batman met up with characters outside of his timelines he actually crossed over with commandy uh in, in my opinion the best uh commandy appearance was actually in brave and the bold there's an issue um because Jack Kirby Batman. wasn't writing it. <laughs> yeah, it was well, it wasn't bad. It wasn't Jack Kirby, but also the arts by uh, by Jim Aparo. So Aparo gets to cut loose with Batman in basically Planet of the Apes, and it's awesome. It's that's and the story's still stupid and wacky, but it's it just looks beautiful, you know, and mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of fun. But uh, I can't remember exactly how Batman got to Commandy's time, but it, trust me, it was ridiculous. And then the same thing with uh, there's an old West character called Scalp Hunter. You know, he's a he's an old Indian character. And in that story, uh, Batman is hypnotized in time travels through hypnotism to meet up with Scalp Hunter and have an adventure with him. So, yeah, I'm not making that shit up. It's it's ridiculous. But, but again, you know, Haney doesn't he wasn't he wasn't, you know, really, you know, put too put out by these things. He just, you know, hey, they're two good characters. I want to match them up. Here we go. You know, and there's something to be said for that. Oh, no, I, you know, like I'm not a big I like as I get older, especially like I I end up uh, like um, with um, hope when we, we're doing uh, Clone Wars now or doing Star Wars stories and stuff. And a character will turn up and she'll be like, I want to know this character. You know, I want to know more about this character. And I'm like, I'm fine with them. Just <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with not knowing because. That's sort like I that's sort of like how real life goes, you know. Sometimes people just sort of like come in and come out and you don't know the whole backstory. And and with and with superhero stories, they're almost like fables and myths and stuff. So it, it if if you can craft a good story, you know, and it stands on its own and it doesn't fit in with all the other stories, it's still a good story, you know, and you can just take it as as such, and he was probably just like, I just want to write. You know, he didn't feel like he was. He was probably feeling like he wanted to write a bunch of good Batman stories based on the idea of Batman, and he wasn't really into stitching together a whole canonic, you know, perfectly matched up 
thing because eh, if there was a real Batman, they probably their stories probably wouldn't match up either. There'd probably be all sorts of different legendary, you know, points of view versions and stories that were apocryphal or just like exaggerated and stuff like that. So I'm yeah. I'm 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 never a big you know, I mean, if you're running, if you're purposely running a, a continuous story, you should pay attention to your continuity and stuff. Right. But like yeah, getting super yeah. serious about canon, sometimes, you know, you're missing the forest for the trees. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I've 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 come to kind of the same approach to a, to a degree. I like continuity within the confines of like an ongoing title, for example. You yeah. Know? If you're writing an ongoing title, then yeah, I think your continuity, I, I think it behooves you to keep it tight to keep the reader interest. You know, but at the same rate, you know, if if you have an entire universe of characters, you know, trying to to quibble and nitpick every little thing about that entire universe when things don't exactly line up, you know, the the classic example as it came to like Crisis on Infinite Earths was that you know, the Atlantis that Aquaman lived in might not necessarily be the same Atlantis that Batman went to in some adventure in the 50s, and it wasn't the same Atlantis as Superman went to in some other adventure in the 60s. And ultimately, you know, I've come to feel very differently about that than I did as a kid, where I was, as a kid, you know, going into the crisis, I was like, yeah, yeah, let's make all that stuff sink and, and make sense. And, and now I'm like, eh, who really gives a fuck, you know? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. You know, as long as there's a good story in there, I don't really care. You know. Well, it reminds me of when, like, it used to be there used to be Amazing Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man coming out at the same time. And if right. I recall right, Amazing Spider-Man was more like the soap opera. You know, it had his day-to-day life with Mary Jane and like ongoing drama that went from comic to comic. Whereas Spectacular Spider-Man was just sort of a a spy. It, you know, it wasn't a team up like Marvel team up or something, but it was it was uh, just sort of its own story, you know, just a little Spider-Man story. And I always remember like thinking, I don't need these to match up, you know, right. they did match up a lot, a lot. But I didn't need one story to always cross reference perfectly. You know, I could take them as two different things, you know. This is right. this is the ongoing story. And this is just like if you just want to read a Spider-Man story you know right and, uh, i mean i respect them when they try to do stuff like that because to my memory in the early issues of a lot of those books um because you know there weren't near as many of them back when we were kids so it was a little easier to maybe make them sync up than now you know when uh-huh. you've got batman that has you know 50 titles or whatever but i remember like when marvel team up came along for example in the early issues of Marvel Team Up, there was often a reference that would tell you, you know, this adventure takes place between pages two and three of the latest issue yes. of Amazing Spider-Man and something yes. like that, you know. But you'll notice, too, that, you know, the longer you read that title, you know, the less and less of those notes that you would get until eventually they just dropped off completely. Right, and, right. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. Too much work. Well, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about grades on this particular issue? Um, <laughs> cover, yeah, right. co- co- I mean, cover is, I'm going to give it an A. I just, it's, I mean, it's that time period. It's a beautiful, well, it's a Jack, Jack Kirby cover. And there's something about 
the printing, the actual physical printing and the, the color, the dyes, like the oranges and the reds and the saturation of it, it, it turns on all my happy buttons. So A plus on the cover. Uh, art we're, is going to get an A plus. Story. <sighs> um, I'm going to say C. But it's an enjoy. It's a C that I like. <laughs> I, I don't. It's a. It's a C, but don't change. You got personality, kid. <laughs> Flo, fl, float on your personality and not your storytelling skills. But it it works for me. And overall, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it an A because I had a I, I had a riot reading it. I mean, this, <laughs> and as far as fodder for a Get Chris to Read a Comic Book, this is about as good as it gets. <laughs> um, I like the cover a lot. The only thing I don't like about the cover is the Tiger Men, because they just look, they look <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> it's just, yeah. But, it's you know, like I did not know that Tony the Tiger was such a dick. <laughs> but, you know, but as a, you know, what the book is, but as a uh, post-apocalyptic uh, image it's really cool i love the the wrecked deserted shopping mall with the wrecked cars and just you know the post-apocalyptic world i'm a, i'm a total sucker for that sort of thing recognizable everyday things whether they be monuments you know like the lincoln memorial or whether they just be a shopping mall um and this and this is more mad max that this is as Mad Max as you get before Mad Max. Oh yeah, it's more Mad. I think this is more Mad Max than um, Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, you're very right. So you know, taking the the Tiger people into account, I'm I'm gonna go a solid B on this. There's there's definitely room for improvement, but it is a it is a very dynamic image. I like it a lot. Um, interior art. It's not my favorite Kirby. I have come up a long way on Kirby, or at least I feel like I have as far as uh, appreciating Kirby the artist. Because um, mm-hmm. you're right, and and you know I'm not afraid to admit it. As a kid, I, I detested Jack Kirby. Yep. A- anytime I would ever pick up a book and it was Kirby, I'd put it right back on the stands. I just could not stand his art. I've come to appreciate it uh, as an adult. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily a fan um, but I do. And, you know, you, you can ask Paul, you know, from time to time, I'll, you know, I'll post up images, you know, that I really enjoy from Jack Kirby books that I read. So I have developed a, a level of appreciation for him. I like the opening of this book, you know, the, the two page splash again of the post-apocalyptic shopping mall is just great. I mean, I could actually see this in, you know, on TV or in a movie, you know, uh, Logan's mm-hmm. run or Planet of the Apes or Walking Dead or something. Uh, it's very Walking Dead in a lot of ways. You know, with it What's really neat about it is, is it's a 70s mall that's all smashed, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or like a zombie movie, you know? Yeah. Like, like, a, like a Romero movie. Um, where it loses me, you know, artistically, though, is... Uh, you know, it just it, it could use a little more refinement. It does look a bit rushed to me in places. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's the inker. I'm not sure. Um, it's it's not the best Jack Kirby I've ever seen, but it, it's good. It's solid. Um, it's just not. 
I don't know. It's it's lacking something, and, it, and it's hard to define exactly what that something is. So art wise, I think I'm going to go a B minus on the art because I, I have definitely seen better uh, from Jack Kirby, but th- this is not bad by any by any stretch. Uh, the really difficult grade is, of course, the story because it's just. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, what do you put it up to compare it to? You know, to to yeah. <laughs> figure out a scale. Well, that's that's the thing though is that I I I I now feel like I do have things to compare it to. So here's the thing, and you you always gotta believe me. You always gotta be careful anytime you're even perceived to be criticizing Jack Kirby because people want to come after you, man. Yeah. People are fanatical for Jack Kirby. So here's the thing. I'm not trying to denigrate the guy. I'm not trying to, you know, be down on him. But I have come to appreciate Kirby, the artist, and Kirby, the idea man. Because I think the guy was just overflowing with ideas. He's a great idea guy. But that's why the early Marvel Universe with Stan and Jack is what it is because you had that careful balance between the two. You had Jack rattling off amazing, incredible, insightful, imaginative, fun ideas, and then Stan there to refine it, to filter it, to hone it into what it became. And without Stan or somebody there, it's 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 George Lucas syndrome, you know. I yeah. mean, how many how many YouTube no, you can see that in his seen. later in Jack Kirby's later work yeah. where people were like, "We got Jack Kirby to do something. We'll just let him do whatever he wants." Oh no, <laughs> you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That is that is the textbook definition of Eternals. We'll let Jack Kirby do this and do whatever he wants, and then you read it and you're like, "Oh, well, maybe we shouldn't have done that." Yeah, I guess he it, did do whatever he wanted. It's you know, how many YouTube videos have you seen? saying the problem with the prequels is that nobody told George no. That's the same problem that a lot of later day Kirby projects have is there was nobody there, not necessarily to tell him no, but to tell him, how about this? Mm -hmm. And without that, you get this. Not that it's horrible. It's not, but it's really far out and it's hokey and it's a little tough to get through. So, you know, all that said, I'm going to go right middle of the road. C. I I don't love it. I don't hate it. It's fun. Um, but it's also kind of forgettable too. So I don't know. A, a lot of it, I think comes from riding the coattails of planet of the apes during the time it came out. And then I think a lot of it present day is viewed through the eyes of nostalgia, you know? Rose yeah. Colored oh yeah, for sure. So overall grade on this is a very enthusiastic um, C plus B minus. Hmm. So it's fun. You know, I would recommend it if you just want to read something fun and, and wacky, but don't take it too seriously or it'll, you know, you'll blow a gasket in your brain. <laughs> there you well, go. It's, it's got that cultural artifact feel about it, you know, right. You 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 know you I I wasn't sitting down to be like I you know I mean so, like when I got that new Rick Veitch book I I sat down on the can to read it but I was like ah time to absorb the new you know the latest of this and like hmm catching all the good details this is just like 
oh, but you know, this is like watching a grindhouse movie or something like that, right. you know, some low budget exploitation movie, you know, where you're just like, <laughs> all right, <laughs> time to just turn off the brain and and hopefully it looks pretty. It's it's like it reminds me of like when Star Wars came out, you know, as you and I well know, then there was that just glut of shitty cheap ass imitators, you know, Battle right. Beyond the Stars and all that. What what if apes had inspired the same thing? What if what if there had been just a glut of you know, I won't say shitty in context with this because I don't think it's shitty, but you know what I mean, like 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 knockoffs knockoffs of planet of the apes and that's what this reminds like you know i mean that's what it is but but almost in a cinematic effect you know you've got roger corman's planet of the apes you know something like that yeah yeah oh totally and but like as an adult now i'm down with that shit when i was a kid i was (laughs) hostile towards right any any crappy star wars things and like like those Star Wars, like the character cases that were off-brand, that had you know Darth Vader and and C3QO on the cover of them, you know the, right. the and and all that stuff. I remember like I would be humi- I was hu- I had one of those and I was humiliated that I did that it didn't have, have the one. real Star Wars stuff on it. And and like then I ran across that very case at a garage sale. I was just like. <gasps> This is yep. awesome. <laughs> you know? I have one sitting just out of my reach right now that's that's intended to go on eBay eventually. It's beat to shit, but I'm still hoping that there's a market for that kind of thing out there somewhere. I think it's called like Star World. I'll take yeah, a picture Yeah, yeah, no, I that's I have the exact same one. It's like a blue and black case, yeah. right? And they're all standing on the, the front of it. It's yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, Vader, it's that, that Vader, sort of folded plastic. Yeah, the Vader analog looks more like a samurai warrior or something. Yeah, I have that exact one sitting in my eBay room right now. When I I found that in a garage sale, I was just like, oh my god, this is awesome. (laughs) And they were looking at me like I was nuts. I'm either going to sell it for a pretty penny, and if I can't get a good price out of it, I'm actually going to cut the, very carefully, cut the picture out and frame it. (laughs) Because the art is so bad. It's good. You it know? is. It is. That's the thing is, and I love, I love all those old Star Wars knockoff movies. Now they're a riot. They're so ridiculous, you know. And it's, <laughs> it's not all of them actually, but like I do like Battle Beyond the Stars. It's stupid as hell, but it's, it's was fun now. Was that the one with John Boy? Yeah, and George Papard, and. Like when it first came out, I was just like, "Oh my God, they got George, they got George Papard, like the A team guy, to play Hans." You know, basically he's, and it, and I was just like, "Oh, this is so stupid," because like people are like, "Oh, Hansel is kind of a space cowboy," so they have George Papard with a cowboy hat and like, "Yeehaw!" You know. <laughs> yeah, I think Robert Vaughn was in that too. It was like, uh, it was yeah, it was a whole collection of TV actors and. I remember going to the drive-in to see that, and I think it was the old Starlight that later became the porno drive-in, mm-hmm. but I remember going to see that. I don't know what the hell was on the double bill, but just watching it and going, 
what the hell? And you know me, I had a terrible shit filter as a kid. I loved a lot of stuff that I've seen as an adult and thought, man, I must have been just brain damaged when I was a kid. But even even that, I remember watching going, wow, this is shit. Oh, yeah, they had the one spaceship that had boobs on it with the female voice and she had boobs and everything. <laughs> yeah, it was. But that's the thing is they were throwing one a million ridiculous things at the screen at the same time. And it's got the Klingon music in it. Because um, what's his name did the soundtrack? And, oh, that's right. James and he recycled Parker, yeah. the music. He recycled the music from Battle Beyond the Stars into the Klingon music from the motion in the motion picture, or vice versa. That's, that's it. Had to be the other way around because, well, I don't know if Battle Beyond the Stars came out before the motion picture, but like, there's a scene with a big spaceship in it. It's like they got the bong bong the Klingon music going. I'm just like, oh my god. <laughs> Talk about recycling your your material there. Well, they're probably using the the blaster beam. That became such a big thing for sci-fi movies, you know, yeah. soundtracks there for for just a hot minute, you know, right around the time that the first Star Trek movie came out. Well, whew, we've got a long one on this one, but uh, I, I'm hoping that the the listeners have enjoyed. It. I've certainly enjoyed it. This has been a lot of fun. We're gonna have to do this more often. I'm sure Paul's gonna enjoy the break. <laughs> the week off it was fun getting the band back together yeah oh he i'm sure he will yeah because paul paul does all the heavy lifting on the episodes so whenever you know there's a a bonus where bill or i uh will do a show and actually edit it <laughs> you record it edit it do all the work ourselves you know it's a nice breather for him keeps him from burning out i hope gets a, some time to hang out with the old lady you know right kids <laughs> <laughs> Well, they all sit. They all sit outside his his man cave, listening to talk to you and Bill all the time. Single tear coming from each of their eyes. <laughs> Daddy, won't you talk with us? Shut up! I'm podcasting. <laughs> Slowly hey, closes the, the door. The <laughs> <laughs> well, anything else before we uh, before we take off? Yeah, not that I can think of. I wouldn't mind doing this again sometime. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll have to pick some uh, some even shittier books next time. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at two truefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Our company motto is, what's it to you, asshole? And we stand by that.